The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel, where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our way of leading. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God commanded man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth, to be fruitful and multiply in ideas and influence, and to cultivate the garden, making sense of the earth around them, subduing and replenishing it for His glory. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because this world needs you right now. No matter who you are or where you find yourself, it's my deep prayer that as you listen, meditate, become courageous to act, and go deeper in your walk with God, some of you just at the beginning of that journey, that you will be changed back into the original image and likeness in which you were created. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and share. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So let's go ahead and begin. We have a lot of ground to cover this evening, so I want to begin in prayer, and then I want to tuck into the word that the Lord has given us. So let us pray. Eternal Father, thank you so much for the School of Ministry and Leadership. We know, Lord, that you send out your word, not for it to return to you void, but for it to accomplish that for which it is being sent out. And so, Father, we throw our faith into this word. And we know, Lord, that even as you give it to us, we ask you to help us persevere. We ask you to help us, Lord, finish that which you have called us to do. And at the end of the day, Lord, we know that everything that will be done will be done by your grace and it will be done for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed and all the saints shall say amen. So amen and amen and good evening. Welcome to the School of Ministry and Leadership. So tonight we are going to look at leading through fatigue, leading through fatigue. If we were going to take a survey on the call and ask how many of us are tired, I'm sure I would see some hands. We're living in a day when there is so much stimulation, when there are so much choices to make, there's so much to do, there's so many responsibilities, there's so many distractions, and there's so much activity that it is leaving many of us tired. And so I want us to look this evening at what does it mean to lead when you are tired? What does it mean to lead when you are fatigued? What does it mean to lead when you are exhausted? And how do we lead through that? So let us start as we always do this year. We've been looking at our theme of influence. I just want to remind us that influence is de defined as the capacity to have an effect on people or processes. And that effect is indirect, but it is noticeable. And so the first question that I want us to ask ourselves this evening is, how well do you exert your influence when you are tired? Another question is, what kind of influence do you exert when you're tired? 
So as I said, many of us are tired. We are physically tired. We are emotionally tired. We are mentally tired. Some of us are spiritually tired. Many of us are beyond tired and we're actually now in the realm of exhaustion. And there have been new pressures that appeared with the COVID-19 pandemic that have not gone away. So the lockdown and the longer hours, and even as we have returned back to our normal schedules and our normal routines, we have found that we're working more, that we're sitting longer. For those of us who sit in front of computers, we're, we're spending more time at work, even if we're working in our homes. We don't eat well like we're supposed to. We don't exercise enough as we're supposed to. And research has been done on this and recent polls have shown that in the UK, 25% of adults feel tired most of the time. 25% of the UK adult population feels tired most of the time. There's another 13% that feels tired all of the time. So you can imagine seven days a week, 13% of the adult population in the UK are feeling tired all the time. Now in the US, a different poll was done, but similar results. They found that 27% of Americans wake up feeling tired at least four days a week. So a significant amount of the population feels tired. Neuroscience studies have been done to show that insufficient sleep and fatigue lead to poor judgment, lead to lack of self-control. And interestingly, for the creatives among us, lead to impaired creativity. So we don't think as well, we're not as innovative when we are tired. And there is some research that even shows that high levels of sleep deprivation are also equal in behavior to low levels of drunkenness. So when you are very, very, very tired, your behavior can actually seem like someone who is drunk. And we know that being tired can be dangerous. So for any of us who have fallen asleep while driving, and again, I'm sure if we were to take a poll, there would be one, maybe three, maybe five hands that would go up. We know that it's dangerous to fall asleep at the wheel. And even when we look at certain medications, the kind of medications that make us drowsy, they come with warnings on the labels that say that these medications should not be taken while driving or while operating heavy machinery. And yet, even as we know all this, we know that we can't afford to sleep. We know that we need to sleep. We know that the body needs rest. It needs rest to rejuvenate. It actually needs rest to grow. The reason why babies sleep so much is because they need all that sleep so that they can grow, so that they, their bones can actually become longer. While we know this, many of us feel as though we can't afford to sleep. We just don't have time to sleep. And the millionaire Aristotle Onassis was quoted as saying that the man who sleeps will wake up and find himself a failure. We also have several places in the Bible where we are reproved from sleep. Jesus told Peter, James, and John, he asked them, are you guys still sleeping? Are you sleeping at this time? So we know that we have so much to do. We know that we can't afford to sleep. The Bible says, wake up, sleeper. And yet we want to sleep. We're tired. We're exhausted. And so fatigue is the extreme tiredness that results from mental or physical exertion. 
It also results from illness. So we get to the level of fatigue when we have become extremely tired, when we have gone through a serious mental exertion or a serious physical exertion. And burnout is real. So those of you who feel as though you're on the cusp of burnout, I want you to know that it's real. That fatigue is also real. And so the question is, is what do we do with these things, these threats when they hit our leadership? And so tonight we're going to look at a leader who experienced burnout and the surprising way he bounced back. And we're actually going to look at the prophet Elijah this evening. Now, this may come as a surprise to many of us, because when we think about Elijah, we don't think of him usually as a leader. We think of him, of course, as a great prophet, but we don't read about Elijah commanding a great army or managing a team or leading people. And yet when we look closely, we see that Elijah played a very important role as the voice of God in a nation where leadership had gone wrong, where leadership was exceedingly evil. And when we look at the story of Ahab and Elijah, so the king and the prophet, we see that their stories are intertwined and that their leadership existed in tension. On the one hand, we had a king, an evil king, who represented positional leadership. So his authority came from his position as king. And on the other hand, we had a prophet who had spiritual authority. And the tension between King Ahab and the prophet Elijah was the battle to turn the people of God back to God, away from worshiping the Baals. And so this was a power struggle. And the first point that I want to make this evening is that in your leadership, you will need to ask yourself, what is the source of your authority? Are you leading purely out of your position? And connected to that, being negatively influenced by those behind you. So in this case, it was the Queen Jezebel, who was a big factor uh, in influencing Ahab to be so wicked. Or does your authority flow from the fact that you speak the righteousness of God? In other words, God has made you a voice to speak truth to power. And the place from which you speak that truth may not be in the place of positional leadership, but it will come from leadership that is backed by spiritual authority. So we think about Ahab and Elijah locked in this power struggle for the people of God. Were they going to continue following the Baals as Ahab had led them to? Or were they going to turn and follow the God of Israel as Elijah was coming to ask them? So what do we know about Elijah? Very interesting. We don't actually know that much about him. He jumps onto the scene in 1 Kings 17, just at the same time when Ahab becomes king. And I had to actually go back and read several chapters of both both first and second kings uh, to get the context of this story. It's really interesting, you know, it was actually very, very exciting. So if any of you have nothing to do, I would just suggest put away the Netflix, open first and second kings, 
everything you want is there. You've got palace intrigue, you've got bloodshed, you've got trickery, you've got coups. Very, very interesting. So these books are filled with the chronicles of the kings, both the kings of Israel, so the northern kingdom after it had split away, and then the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. And, and Benjamin. And even though these chronicles tell the stories of these kingdoms, these uh, eras that were led by these kings, some of them bad, some of them very bad, and fewer of them who were good kings, we see that Elijah actually takes up several chapters in both First and Second Kings. So he appears out of nowhere in First Kings chapter 17. We don't get a long lineage about his fathers, who his fathers were. All we're told is that he's from Tishbe, on the other side of the Jordan, so the land of Gad. And we know that because he's from Tishbe, he is Elijah the Tishbite. And when Elijah the Tishbite appears in 1 Kings 17, he appears immediately challenging the wickedness of Ahab. He appears immediately proclaiming a drought on the land of Israel. What we do know is that Elijah's name means, my God is Jehovah. What a powerful name. And true to his name, when he shows up, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So Elijah the Tishbite was true to his name. His name meant my God is Jehovah, and indeed he served his God. So I want us to look at the story of Elijah, but we're going to actually start from the end. We're going to work our way backwards because I don't want us to lose something very, very important. A few things that are important for us to understand just how important Elijah was. So the first thing for us to note is that Elijah was honored by God. How do we know this? We know that Elijah never died, that he was translated. He didn't see death, just as Enoch didn't see death, but was taken up. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire, and drawn by horses of fire. So God gave Elijah that honor. Elijah was one of the two who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah appears with Moses when Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And when Jesus appeared on the earth, the prophet who preceded him, that is John the Baptist, was called in the spirit and the power of Elijah. It's interesting for us to note that Elijah was such a significant prophet, and yet he doesn't have his own book. We read about Elijah and his works in Kings 1 and 2, but we don't read a book of Elijah. And I like to think this is because he was too busy calling down fire to actually sit down and write. So those are the few things that we know about Elijah from after his life. But in his own lifetime, there's a few things that we also know about Elijah. What we know about him is that he performed crazy, crazy miracles. So we see Elijah causing a woman's oil and meal to keep replenishing after she feeds him. That's the widow of Zarepta. 
we see Elijah raising a child from the dead. And I think this is the first case of uh, resurrection that we have in the Old Testament, unless someone can correct me. We see Elijah being able to control the rain. So not only was he able to hold back the rains, he was also able to call them down. And we see Elijah outrunning chariots on foot in the rain. I don't know how many of us have tried to run barefoot in the rain, but on muddy ground, you don't get very far. And yet Elijah was able to run, outrun Ahab's chariots and run all the way back down through the pouring rain to reach the gates of Jezreel. And we also see Elijah smiting people by fire, not on one, not on two, but on several occasions. When Ahab had sent armies to go and bring the prophet to him, he smote the first commander and his 50 when they said, come with us. He did the same with the second, and it was only the third commander when he knelt down before the prophet and begged for his life and, and actually gave honor to the prophet that Elijah followed them and went to see Ahab. So we know that Elijah was a prophet of signs and wonders, in particular, fire. And then, of course, we know the story that God answers Elijah's prayer when he is on the top of Mount Carmel with an offering set upon an altar that is soaked in water, surrounded by 450 of the prophets of Baal, and God comes down and consumes his sacrifice, proving that he is indeed the God of fire, but he's the God of Israel. And yet, with all of this, when Jezebel threatens to come after Elijah, the Bible says that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. The Hebrew renders it that he saw and ran for his life. So we can imagine that Elijah saw into the, the realm of the spirit. He saw his death happening at Jezebel's command. And he was afraid, and so he ran. And so the question that we ask ourselves here is that this Elijah, this prophet who seemed to control rains and who seemed to control fire, why didn't he just command fire on Jezebel? What I want us to discuss this evening is the fact that after the rush of Carmel, Elijah was exhausted. He was physically exhausted, he was mentally exhausted, and he was spiritually exhausted. And so to hear that Jezebel and Ahab were still around, still plotting evil, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Perhaps Elijah had been expecting them to repent. But whatever the case, Elijah didn't see the results that he had expected. And because Elijah was fatigued after this great confrontation with 450 of Baal's prophets, Elijah got emotional. And because he became emotional, out of exhaustion, he became afraid. And the same is true for us, that when we are tired, we get irritable, we get emotional, we start to feel sorry for ourselves, we think that we're all alone, we forget all the good, and we remember only the bad. And this shows us that we are not so different from babies. You know that little ones, when they 
are irritable, when they're cranky, when they're crying, what do you do? You put them down for a good nap. You know that the time when they start running around is because they're overtired. And if they just get a little bit of sleep, everything will be okay. And we are no different. We still have that basal fight or flight tendency. And so after what happened on Mount Carmel, Elijah had fought. He had fought a very good fight, but now he was exhausted and the flight mechanism began to set in. Now with this particular story in the Bible, many commentators miss something. We often get taught this story as a lesson of how could someone who was so greatly used by God, how can someone who was so anointed, so powerful, who had seen God move, how could such a person have such a bad wobble of faith? How could Elijah be so faithless? But we see that James in the New Testament gives us the answer. When we turn to James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, and then verse 17, James writes, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Amen. And so this is the reason why Elijah had that famous wobble of faith because he's just a human being, just like you and I. He got fatigued because he grew tired of waiting. Elijah thought that after Carmel, his work would be done, that the people of God would repent, that all the evil in the land would be wiped away, and that God would be able to reign in the glory in which he deserves. But in hearing Jezebel's threat, this is not what Elijah got. And so what we're going to see this evening as we begin to sort of now knit several scripture together is to see that the biblical answer to fatigue, the biblical answer to fatigue is perseverance. The biblical answer to fatigue is perseverance. Now, this is counterintuitive to us, but as with many things in God's kingdom, we see that the logic is opposite to what we're used to from the world. So the world says, if I'm tired, I should rest. But the kingdom says, if you're tired, you should persevere. So let's look now at the scripture. I want us to look at this episode, what happens to Elijah. And I'm going to ring, I'm going to read, I'm going to read from 1 Kings 
chapter 19, verses 1 to 19. I'm going to read it in its entirety. And I'm doing that because it's the word of the Lord. And so we should just let it wash over us. But I want us to understand the text in context. And so sometimes we need to read it a little bit lengthier to actually be able to put together the parts that we, we are familiar with and that we know, but see how they hang together. And the scripture is going to show us several things. It's familiar to us. But when we look at it in its length, we're going to see something new. So wherever you are, sit back, relax, and enjoy the word of the Lord. Let me read. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So Elijah got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. 
When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. Amen. So there's lots, lots, lots in here, and let's try to pick it apart bit by bit. So what do we see from this scripture, from this lengthy scripture, from the story of Elijah running away for fear of his life, exhausted, disappointed, seeking God, and this interaction that they have together? So the first thing to note is that Elijah, Elijah did what we do. He ran because he was afraid. And I want us to note that Elijah ran out of the place that God had called him and into a place that had previously worked for him. So Elijah ran out into the wilderness. And how do we know that this was something that had previously worked for him? Because when we flip the page back to 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 to 5 there, we see that the Lord actually commands Elijah to go out into the wilderness. And there he's going to feed him with ravens. And Elijah is going to stay there in this time of drought. And he's going to stay by the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. He'll get his refreshment from the brook and the ravens will supply him with meat morning and evening. So because Elijah had had this thing that God had done for him previously, when Elijah meets a moment of trouble, when Elijah meets this moment where he's exhausted and fatigued and in fear, he thinks that that previous place is going to work for him. And this brings me to the second point that I want to make this evening which is that God's past solutions for you are not always what he's calling you to now. Remember a few weeks ago when we spoke about the seasons and the seasons changing. Here we have a situation where the seasons have changed. God called Elijah into the Kareth ravine in the time of drought. But now we find a situation where God has called the rains. Elijah has commanded the rains and the rains have fallen in chapter 18. And so the climate has changed, the season has changed. And so that hiding place in the wilderness is no longer God's solution for Elijah. And we need to remember that, that when we meet trouble, the solutions that worked for us in the past are not always the same solutions that God is calling us to. The next point that I want to make, point number three, is that in your fatigue, in your exhaustion, there will be moments when God feeds you and gives you rest. This is what Jesus says to us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so God gives spiritual food because he knows that we are but dust. He knows that the journey is too much. And why then is the journey too much? 
The journey is too much because this is the eternal journey that we're on, not the temporal journey. So in our human frailty, in our inability to see, we often think that the journey is just until retirement. Or maybe some of us think that the journey is until death. But the real journey is about the master's judgment. And when I use the word judgment here, I'm not speaking about the judgment of guilt, which is why many of us probably don't ever think about this because we don't want to think about whether we're guilty or whether we're innocent. But when I say judgment, what I really mean is pronouncement. What will the master's pronouncement upon you be? So in this temporal journey, in this life, many of us consciously work for what we would call CV virtues. So if we were to look at your CV, there would be some virtues that you would list there. I'm attentive to detail. I'm a meticulous worker. I'm a good team member. Whatever it is that your domain, your field, your sector calls for, we'll see it on your CV. So many of us consciously work for CV virtues. And unconsciously, many of us probably work for eulogy virtues. So what people will say about you in your biography, when they read your biography at your funeral, what are the things that they're going to say about you? That she was rich in friends, that she was generous with her time. So we don't work for those, those virtues consciously, but we may be working for them unconsciously. However, how many of us are actually working to hear Jesus say, well and done, good and faithful servant. So when we turn to Matthew 25, 23, and we have the parable of the talents, we see that the three servants were given talents differentially. They were given talents according to their several ability. And the master's pronouncement on each of them is in accordance to the rate of return the yield on investment that they have gained on the talents that he gave them. And the master says to the first two who actually have something to show for their talents, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your master's joy. And so the master's joy is the place of rest. And so how many of us now, as we switch into thinking not about the temporal journey, but about the eternal journey, how many of us are laboring, this exhaustion that we feel, this tiredness that we feel, how much of that is because we are laboring to enter into the master's joy, enter into this place of rest? So this question brings me to the fourth point that I want to make, which is that the journey towards rest is accomplished in obedience. The journey towards rest is accomplished in obedience. And here, if we turn to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, the writer of Hebrews says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their labor, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter.
Christ so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So here the writer is speaking of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, when they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. And the reason why they wandered for those 40 years is because they were disobedient to God's command. They were unfaithful when they thought that they couldn't possess the land that he was giving them because it was populated at that time with giants. So in their disobedience, they perished and they lost access to the place of rest. But here the writer is saying to us that we should strive to enter into God's rest because that is a place where we rest from our labor and we enter that place through obedience by not following the example that was laid by the Israelites, their example of disobedience. So the journey towards rest, the journey towards rest is accomplished in obedience and that obedience is tested through faith. And so this walk of faith that we are on is walked in tiredness. It's walked in, in exhaustion. It's walked through places. It's walked through storms. It's walked carrying a heavy load. It's walked sometimes perhaps feeling as though you're lost. Only that you're not lost. You once were lost, but now you're found. You once were blind, but now you can see. So what else do we know about this test of faith, this walking tired, this walking exhausted, this walking in fatigue? We turn back to James, and now I'm making the fifth point. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We saw this recently, just a few weeks ago. James encourages us to count it all joy. James says that whenever you face trials of many kinds, count it all joy. Count it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the reason for the test of faith is to work out perseverance according to James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. But the Apostle Paul breaks this process down, this working out of perseverance down. He breaks it down for us in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have, pard since we have been pardoned through faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of glory. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. So what Paul is saying is he says we are pardoned through faith 
and now have peace with God because of Jesus. In other words, we have entered into his rest. We've been forgiven through faith. But faith does not only forgive us, faith grants us access to this grace. And in this grace, we can now stand, which means that we actually come to a stop. We stop walking and we can stand. It's not only do we slow down that forward movement, that walking in fatigue, that walking in tiredness, but we come to a stop, we come to a stillness, and we are given strength to be upright. We don't now sit in the grace, but we can now stand in the grace. And then Paul goes on to say that we boast, therefore, not only in our success, but we also boast in our suffering. So why do we boast in the suffering? Why do we glory in the suffering? He gives us a mathematical equation because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And so therefore we can conclude from this equation that suffering produces hope. So we can conclude that the weariness is for hope. The exhaustion is for hope. The fatigue is for hope. And we know, of course, that hope is related to faith. We turn to Hebrews 11 that tells us that if we know that hope is the, it's the substance of faith, that faith is the evidence of things not yet seen, the substance of things yet hoped for. And when we begin to speak about substance, we're speaking about things that have a weight. We're speaking about things that are heavy. And again, God knows in our frailty that sometimes we buckle under the weight of hope. And so this is why Isaiah declares to us in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through to 31, the prophet declares, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But them who wait upon the Lord, them who hope in the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar up, they will mount up on eagles' wings. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So the Bible is teaching us that in the face of weariness, we are to keep running with perseverance. We are to finish the race with perseverance. And we persevere by faith. Now, when we define perseverance, perseverance is defined as this. It's to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little or no indication of progress. Let me read that again. The definition of perseverance. To persevere is to continue in a course of action even in the face of difficulty or with little or no indication of progress. So it amazes me that there's even a word that defines that status. 
but it's to tell us that this is a thing, that there's actually a way of being in the face of difficulty where you have little progress or where there's no indication of progress at all. But that thing is true. That thing is real and it exists. And that's what we define as perseverance. So let's return now to the prophet Elijah as I wrap this up and we come to a close. We go back now to 1 Kings chapter 19. And I want just to explain a little bit of the length of what we read earlier. So Elijah has journeyed to the mountain of God. He's gone to Horeb, the same mountain that God gave Moses the commandments from. And Elijah journeys 40 days and 40 nights to reach the mountain of God. He knows that he can find the face of God there. And Elijah is seeking to retreat. He's seeking to rest. And the Lord asks Elijah a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? Or what are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah pours out his complaint about the work that God had given him to do. And so the Lord says to Elijah, Elijah, come outside. I want to show you something. And so he shows Elijah his mighty signs and wonders. We have the wind that blows and breaks up the rocks of the mountain apart. And then we have the earthquake. And then we have the fire, the same fire that God had defeated the prophets of Baal with. But then after those mighty signs and wonders, there's a whisper. Now, what did this still small voice say to Elijah? Well, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But what the Bible does tell us is that upon hearing this whisper, Elijah wraps his cloak around his face and he goes now to stand at the cave of the mountain. So God repeats the same question that he asked Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats the same complaint about the work. And after God patiently listens to him, he basically tells him that his assignment is not finished. He says to Elijah, I know that you're tired. I know that you need rest, but you need to go back the way you came and finish the job. I need you to anoint my prophet. I need you to anoint the kings who I'm going to use to rebuke Israel. And once you have finished the assignment, then you can rest. And what I like about the story, the reason why I read it in its entirety, and the thing that we often miss, remember that we started off by speaking about all the ways that we know that God honored Elijah. He took him up in the whirlwind and the chariot of fire and the horses of fire. It was Elijah who appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Revelation suggests that Elijah may be one of the witnesses. Elijah makes a comeback, even in his wobble of faith. And the point of this story is that, God, is that Elijah obeyed God. The scripture tells us that 
after the Lord tell, told him to go back the way he came. Verse 19 says, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. And we know as we continue reading that it's the prophet Elisha who indeed anoints Jehu as king over Israel. And he also anoints Hazael, or he tells Hazael that he will be king. So the point here is that God knows that we are tired. He sees us struggling. He sees the worries. He sees the late hours. He sees the frustration. He knows the fatigue. But he's saying to each and every one of us this evening that we need to go back and finish the work. We need to go back and finish the work so that we can enter into the master's joy that we can't run away from God's purposes because we're afraid. We can't die prematurely just because we don't see the results that we're expecting. We can't leave his work undone without a succession plan. Because if we do these things, then we forfeit the chariots of fire and we forfeit the horses of fire. We forfeit appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration in the future. We forfeit what it is that God has for us that we haven't seen in the moment of our exhaustion. So I hope that this word has encouraged someone this evening. I hope that it has strengthened someone this evening. I hope that whatever it is that you are going through, the fatigue, the tiredness, the exhaustion, the waiting, the weight of the hoping, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, just know that the Lord is with you. Give yourself a good nap. Wake up ready to continue the work. And I know that the Lord will strengthen your hands, that he will renew your strength, and that you will indeed mount up with eagle's wings. So let us all continue running not growing weary, and let us all continue walking and not fainting. Amen.